welcome to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. I'm glad you've made the connection and are with us today. I'm Lori Fitz, your host. And the goal of our show is to explore a wide range of topics that challenge us to see ourselves, our community, and the world around us in ways that get us connected and perhaps inspired or challenged to do just a bit more because we made that connection. So we are continuing to talk. We talked last week and we're talking this week as well with my good friend, Melissa Adams, who is my co-host. She is my friend and colleague as well. And she is the executive director of the Diversity Institute. So this is part two of our Diversity Institute conversation. Welcome, Melissa. Lori, thank you so much for having me today. So excited to be here. Well, you know, you're you're my co-host, you know, and you're going to be my co-host the first Saturday of every month in 2021. Yeah, I guess I got to get used to that, right? <laughs> yes. yes, you're no longer the guest. You're my partner. <laughs> yeah. So what's interesting, too, is as your partner, I brought a guest with me today. Terrific. Let's let's hear about who you brought today. Awesome. So um, I know in our last segment, I told you about a uh, racial anti-racism facilitation that I was a part of. It was a 10-week program where I actually learned a lot about being a facilitator. I learned a lot about race, racism, and and how systemic racism came about in our country. And uh, the person who was uh, teaching that class was my mentor and friend, Sue Hammersmith. So I'll tell you a little bit about Sue Hammersmith, who is also our guest today. Sue Hammersmith is past president of Metropolitan State University and head of curriculum with the Anti-Racism Study Dialogue Circle uh, program, where I learned some more facilitation skills and a lot more about anti-racism. Uh, Sue Hammersmith is also, uh, Dr. Sue Hammersmith is also a uh, doctor in sociology and anthropology and a uh great fan of political uh, history, like myself, and she's a mom of five and a grandma. Sue, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Melissa? Excited to have you here. Oh, one thing I did not mention about Sue is that she's also my mentor. Uh, Uh She's been helping me to be a better leader and to uh, be a better facilitator when it comes to helping people to move past uh, denial to at (laughs) <laughs> well, one of the, the cool things that we're going to be doing on Connections with the Diversity Institute, we're going to be talking about topics, and then we'll also have shows that will have call-ins. And Melissa picked a really great topic for us to dive into today. Um, many of you may have may recall there was an executive order back in September, September 22, 2020. Now, this is, mind you, after uh, the George Floyd uh, incident and you know, a tough, tough year where the disparities are being showed even in more uh, deeper ways, health-wise, economically, um, social injustices. And this is the time that our our president chose to create an executive order to combat race and sex stereotyping, which bottom line um, prohibited Diversity and inclusion trainings, which seems sort of um, uh, 
anti-intuitive <laughs> that we have all of these issues. And this is the time that we, we don't do diversity and inclusion training. And, and the executive order's stated goal was to combat offensive and anti-race and sex stereotyping and scapegoating, which it sounds like a good idea. But really, it's, it's, um, it was a broadside hit against diversity and inclusion programs and, and the programs that are seeking to reverse the patterns of discrimination. So we're going to take a look, uh, a deeper look at this uh, – the wording and some of the things that we find in the executive order that I think are important to tease out. And we're also going to talk about uh, some of the controversy around it and and the Democrats and what they're doing, as well as uh, uh, lawsuits and all kinds of uh, challenges that are being faced. But what I'd like to first do is just open it up uh, to Sue, uh, Dr. Hammersmith, to share, what was your initial reactions when you took a look at this uh, executive order? <laughs> what, 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 did you take your red well, pen like Melissa took her I, red pen? <laughs> no, I took a yellow highlighter myself. Uh, but um, after I managed to get my breath back and get up off the floor, um, I was really um, initially, initially, I was angry and i thought this is just one more thing that this president is doing to try to shut down the achievement of racial equality in this country and um and so at at the moment i was very very shocked and critical that it had come out since then i've had a little bit different reaction though because i think if you look at it as a document, I'm an academic, of course, it lays out the psychological um, framework that needs to be addressed. It's, it's almost, you could walk through it and say, yep, this is what the people like this president are afraid of mm-hmm. encountering right. in first training. So I think there's a lot for us to talk about. And it can be, I agree, it could be a really useful uh, illumination because so often, you know, I, I feel like I shake my head and go, well, why don't they see this? And and now I know why <laughs> as I look at some of the ideology. Uh, Melissa, I know that you've done some red pen. Do you want to share some of your red pen f- before we start going through this executive order yeah. in more detail? You know, it's a, it's a great question. What was your reaction? You know, um, my reaction when I first saw it, saw it was anger as well. Um, but that, that, I use that anger to fuel, uh, energy. And my organization, the Diversity Institute, started a petition, um, demanding that Donald Trump rescind this, the September 22nd, 2020 executive order. And that, that petition is on change.org. And if people would like to sign this petition, it's, it's not too late to sign it. Um, they can go to change.org backslash P slash stand up for DEI and they will find our petition. Um, because as Sue said, you know, I was floored. I was, I was actually flabbergasted and, you know, don't, I don't use that word. <laughs> well, you know, they may, that may have been, um, noticed by some Democrats because on December 17th, just this last week, 
uh, Democrats did call on the federal government to back off of the president uh, Donald Trump's executive order restricting federal agencies and government contractors from offering diversity trainings. So Elizabeth Warren was leading the way, but we had Bob Mendendez, Sherrod Brown, um, 18 others sending a letter to oppose the implementation of this. Um, yeah. Glory, yeah, yes. could I interject? Yes. I think that um, one of the things I observed was that this order had immediate impact. It had real consequences immediately. The um, uh, the uh, group that is working here in Minnesota hosts an annual Overcoming Racism conference. We've been doing this for 16 years. It's a big, it sells out every year. It's a very effective, very high quality. One of our uh, Minnesota universities had planned to send a large delegation of students to this conference for their own education and their own development. As soon as this order came out, they concluded that because they received federal financial aid, they could not pay for or sponsor any diversity training, period. Oh, that just breaks my heart. That broke my heart, too. And even in in the federal military, for example, uh, they had programs that, uh, this is not controversial, one was going to be um, showing the film um, Malcolm X to some military people and then having small group discussion. They canceled it. It's that fear that gets um, instigated. By something like this, that second guessing that I think has an impact whether or not we have an executive order or not. Yes. And and I think also, you know, the the executive order called for financial penalties for any contractor who gave DEI uh, diversity, equity and inclusion training. It required agencies to send set up hotlines where people could report yeah. And then they'd have to spend time investigating. It was pretty sinister. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you, you bring up a great point that this order actually was also calling for, you didn't have to be a federal organization to call that hotline and report a diversity, or make a report about a diversity training. And when Lori brought up the fact that uh, the Dem- Democrats have said something, the National um, Legal Defense and Educational Fund for the NAACP, the National Urban League, and the National Fair Housing Alliance also um, put out something to say that this was a very punitive kind of um, document. Mm-hmm. Well, the, there is a memo that went out that basically said ideologies that label entire groups of Americans as inherently racist or evil, and I don't can't imagine any good diversity training calling anyone evil. But moving on, <laughs> in diversity, mater- uh, diversity training materials by searching keywords like white privilege, systemic mm-hmm. racism, intersectionality, and unconscious bias. So mm-hmm. if those things come up in, a, in the training, there is penalty uh, potential, which is just terrifying. Right. Well, you, you can't do the training – 
without addressing what they call the divisive concepts. But, you know, they, they cast a light on diversity training as being something that's supposed to make people the the memo, the president's memo, suggests that diversity training is supposed to make people feel bad, right. uh, feel guilty about something that they didn't do, uh, feel divided from other Americans. And, you know, I've been doing this work for years, and I've seen the exact opposite. If it, When it's done well, it draws people together. It builds community. It builds a framework for taking common action, overcoming problems. It's exactly the opposite. It connects people in a right relationship. Well, it's interesting you should say that because during the debate, um, uh, our, our current president said that they were teaching people that our country is a horrible place. It's a racist place. And they were teaching people to hate our country. And I'm not going to allow that to happen. And and Biden, like you, just said back to him, nobody's doing that. I mean, right? There, there's racial insensitivity, but nobody's teaching people to hate their country. And it, there are great benefits of bringing people together versus using fear and divisiveness. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. That's, I think that is the great hope for where do we go from here? Uh, the question that that uh, Martin Luther King left with us. Is it going to be, you know, community or chaos? Mm -hmm. And this last year has been chaos for sure. And the diversity and equity and inclusion training is all designed to accomplish that American dream. You know, we don't reject that American dream of the, the worth and dignity of every individual that everyone's created equal. We just want to make it a reality. And celebrate it. Yes. Right. That this administration is fostering fear and trying to um, perpetuate that fear and get people to kind of sit in that. And that's when people are polarized. They're afraid of difference. Well, well, what I'd love to do, I've got to go to break, but what I'd love to do is have in our next segment, continue to talk about what are some of these underlying assumptions And what can diversity inclusion programs accomplish that that do bring us to a better sense of community? So stay with us. We'll be back after just a few short commercials uh, to talk about both the executive order and how the Diversity Institute is helping to make a difference. Stay with us. Radio Show. So glad that you've made the connection. I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and I have my co-host, friend, and colleague, Melissa Adams, joining me today. Welcome, Melissa. Hi, Lori. Welcome. Yeah, great conversation that we've been having on this uh, executive order uh, that was in combating race and sex stereotyping by President Trump. And yeah. some of the reactions lately about getting that turned over. Uh, and you have brought a wonderful guest. and I'm going to let you introduce her. Yes. My uh, friend, colleague, and mentor, Sue ha- Dr. Sue Hammersmith, is here with us. And I thought it would be really important to speak with Dr. Hammersmith because uh, Dr. Hammersmith is the uh, one of the head facilitators for 
the anti-racism study dialogue circle where I, as a diversity consultant who has over 10 years of experience, learned a lot. <laughs> welcome, Sue. Well, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, I'm so happy to have you here. Absolutely. I was, go, go for it, yeah. Melissa. I was actually, before we left the last segment, I, I mentioned um, that this is really something that is kind of kicking up a lot of fear and in fear, this executive order. Because executive, and so you can correct me if my, I'm wrong, because I know you are a, a political uh, junkie, as they say. Executive orders tend to be political documents in some respect. Is that correct? I beg your pardon. Can you repeat so these these executive orders aren't they? Don't they tend to be um, political documents? It's kind oh, of yes. overreach, right? Is this yes. an overreach on the, the part of the, the White House? Um, very much so. And um, this one communicates not just some marching orders and directions, but also so much about a sense of values and um, how we want as a nation to consider or not consider our future together as as a complex nation. Um, for example, this order talks about a, a destructive ideology when they tell about our country's history. And um, one of the things that we need to do in order to understand where we are today and how we got here today is to know historically um, how things developed as they are. For example, this wealth gap that we have between African Americans, uh, Indigenous Americans, and white Americans, that was produced very deliberately by the federal government over many decades. And um, I can give you just a couple of examples. Um, the GI Bill, which it was so wonderful for helping the veterans get upward mobility. Uh, it it provided mortgages, provided uh, paid for college, uh, provide small business opening loan grants, 98% of that money went to white men. Hmm. And um, the FHA program that uh, provided mortgages, I remember when I was a child, my mom always said, if you can get an FHA mortgage, that's the best. Again, those mortgages went 98% to white people. And so when we look at our wealth gap today, if we don't know the history and, and the giving out of all the land to white people. My family got uh, land grants back in the early 1800s. Um, black Americans were not eligible for those. And the land was taken away from the indigenous uh, people. So if we don't know the history, we can look at what we see today and we can think, hmm, white people must be better workers or better investors or more virtuous. And the other people just aren't trying as hard. And if you know the history, you see, oh, my goodness, we're here in different positions because we've been historically put in different positions. None of us chose what group we were going to be born into, but it put us in a very different place. And this document regards the teaching of uh, the factual teaching of American history as a destructive ideology. They think it's unpatriotic and um it's 
they and they also think if you recognize any differences between the different groups, they call that divisive. Right. One of the things I've learned is that my um, my friends, my colleagues who are from different ethnic backgrounds, we really do bring different tools to the table, different family histories, different strengths from what our people have had to deal with. And um, this document regards it as divisive to recognize that there are any differences. And, you know, Sue, you know, when you talk about differences and recognizing differences, that reminds me of the uh, intercultural development inventory by Mitchell Hammer. Um, Yes. And it, it actually, as I was reading through this document, it kind of brought up some of the um, learning that I, I obtained around that, um, going from denial to, uh, what what is it, denial, uh, polarization? Polarization, minimization, acceptance, and adaptation. If, can I jump in and just say yeah. one thing? At the, the top of page two of this uh, executive order, in the margin, I wrote minimalization. They want to, it's most important for us to see our common status as human beings and Americans. Of course, we have common status as human beings and Americans. But if you're stuck in that stage, you will never be able to deal with racial or multicultural or even international um, issues effectively. Because, yes, on one level, we're all we have so much in common. We're all human beings. We're all born equal. But we're coming from different places, different historical and economic and cultural backgrounds. And, um, and uh, they want to deny people having the opportunity to learn about those differences. And yes. um, when you learn about the differences, it can make you uncomfortable. It can make, as a white person, it made me uncomfortable when I realized, oh, my goodness, my families, we're not rich, but, you know, good, solid middle class. Our economic standing was rooted in specific military actions taken against the Indians to drive them from the land and then to give the land for virtually no money to white people. And it made me uncomfortable. It really made me uncomfortable. But, you know, there are so many things in life. We go through developmental experiences, and we know they're uncomfortable. If you have a, if you have a kid who's, who's going to be signing up for football in middle school or high school, you know they're going to come home with some sore muscles. Mm-hmm. And you just tell them, no pain, no gain. That's part of it. That's how, part of how you develop. And yeah. uh, this executive order appears to me to be written to ensure that white people who have never had to deal consciously with issues of race and diversity, that they are never made uncomfortable. What we tell people is, you know, it's going to be uncomfortable because it's going to unsettle things that you've always assumed to be true, but that's okay. Being uncomfortable is not unsafe. It's something you go through and you come out so much better at the other end. Yes. I love what, I love what you're saying, Sue. Um, And the other thing is, as you're, you're, as we're on um, second section two, are you, are you looking at the part that says definitions for the purposes of this order? (laughs) (laughs) 
So why don't you that, go through some of those definitions? <laughs> yeah, well, there's there's a specific one in there that makes me very uncomfortable. Number five, it says members of one race or sex cannot and should not attempt to treat others without respect to race and sex. Mm-hmm. So are you saying, is this thing that we should discriminate? Um. We should not discriminate against people, but but what that's saying is pre, be colorblind, pretend everybody's the same. And not see Let me tell you what the trouble with yeah. that is. Yeah, let me tell you the trouble with that. And this is from my own personal experience. When I was a sociology professor, um, I would have the students write a lot of essays, a lot of essay exams. And um, I was always surprised because the African-American students, 25% of the students are African-American, and, and the ones who seemed really, really bright never quite did as well on my essay exams. After a while, I realized it's because they come from a cultural tradition where they make an argument by uh, by stating a compelling moral narrative. Ah. And mm-hmm. as I come from a more Germanic background where my cultural tradition was if you want to make an argument, you chop it up, you do the definitions, and then you put it all back together in a very unemotional, um, thesis-driven, mechanical mechanical kind of sense. And once I realized, oh, we just have different ways of expressing things, I came to really appreciate the brilliance of those students and so yeah it's recognizing we're not all we're not fenders that have been stamped out in a an auto making factory to all look alike <laughs> well, so there's there's minimalization that takes place but i think there's also in this order a control as well um one mm-hmm. of the ones that just got to me but training like that discussed above perpetuates racial stereotypes and division can use subtle coercive pressure to ensure conformity of a viewpoint. Such ideas may be fashionable in the academy, but they have no mm-hmm. places, uh, no place in programs and activities supported by federal taxpayer dollars. Research mm-hmm. also suggests that blame-focused diversity training reinforces biases and decreases opportunities for minorities. Now, what I think is interesting about that is I think it is important that you don't put coercive pressure to ensure conformity, Mm -hmm. but the rest of it is all about conforming (laughs) to his point of view, (laughs) which is like, wait a minute, in two sentences, how can you do that? (laughs) Right. Well, let's talk a minute about that term, blame-focused diversity training. I don't even know anybody who does that. Well, it was, it was popular like in the 80s with what was called the, you know, the sensitivity trainings that people felt yeah. sometimes more uncomfortable after. But seriously, that, that was happened like 40 years ago. Right. We have moved well beyond that. And with that, I have to take a break. Our commercial, we're, we're running long on our commercial again, but um, lots more, <laughs> so much more to talk about. And we'll I also want to make sure folks know about the diversityinstitute.org uh, and bringing us this good program for us to talk about what does this mean and what can we learn from this? So stay with us. We'll be right back after just a few short commercials. <laughs> 
Welcome back to Connections Radio Show, where we talk about ideas that matter. And we have been talking about diversity training, a ban, the executive order that that banned, and Democrats that are saying, no, that shouldn't happen, and we're going to get this turned over. But issues all around it, uh, lots to learn from the executive order, and we're having a good straight talk conversation about that with my co-host, Melissa Adams, who is the executive director of the Diversity Institute. Thank you for bringing this topic and um, bringing a great guest to share with us about her thoughts. Well, thank you. And as our guest, we are speaking with Dr. Sue Hammersmith, who is the head of curriculum with ASDEC. ASDEC stands for uh, Anti-Racism Study Group, where uh, facilitators and people who are interested in increasing their cultural competency uh, with some of the core uh, curriculum that's necessary to get you to the next level, uh, you should check out ASDEC. Uh, Dr. Sue Hammersmith is one of the facilitators and helped to create that program. I'm so happy to have you here with us today, Dr. Hammersmith. Thank you for having me. Well, I wanted to jump back in because I know our uh, we're you know heading into the middle half of our show, and I wanted to talk a little bit about this executive order and how we can take it, uh, how people can do things differently going forward. So, Dr. Hammersmith, I just wanted to ask you one more quick question, and that was in regard to this executive order and what it actually means for diversity training. Does this mean that people can no longer do diversity training? Do you know what the outcome will be on this executive order? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, but I um, know what I would like to see. Uh, Certainly, I would like to see it rescinded because it it has no place in federal government. Um, And I would like to see diversity training continue to be uh, uh, fostered and um, offered and not just in the workplace, I think it needs to be infused throughout public education and uh, in age-appropriate ways. But um, what diversity, what quality diversity training requires is, um, uh, first of all, a good intellectual basis. You have to know the facts about history, the facts about um, economics, the facts about neuropsychology. Um, and in the last 20 years, so much scholarship has been done. Um, Harvard University, for example, has a wealth of materials that are, are available to people to use um, where you can take an assessment and see where you have implicit bias, where your unconscious mind maybe making associations, race-based associations or gender-based associations or ability-based associations that are completely contrary to your conscious value system. And, um, and we need to know, we talked a little bit in the last time about the history. You also have to have uh, training, trainers who are very um, much committed in providing a learning experience that respects the worth and dignity of every individual. You have to realize that learning about diversity is a developmental process. It's a lifelong journey. And um, all of us are at 
different points on that journey. So if somebody says something that is, you think, not appropriate or hurtful, a microaggression, for example, you have to assume they were not ill-intended and go in relationship with them and get to what's behind it and explore together. You have to have um, a, a very um, civil uh, atmosphere in your diversity settings, but you also have to realize that uh, this is tough material and it gets uncomfortable at time, and that's okay. You don't want to leave people being uncomfortable at the end. What I've noticed is on the 10-week sessions we do, about the third week, people get very uncomfortable as they're recognizing things they had always believed really are not as simple as they thought. But by the end of the 10 weeks, they don't want to they don't want to stop getting together. They feel a sense of bond and community. And it takes still to do that. What, what do you think, what happens? What's that aha? What's that transformation moment like? We, do, you, do you see it like at the fifth, sixth week? Or what, what seems it, to start to turn the corner from feeling defensive to being open to new concepts? Um, it happens about the fourth week. And what, and what we see is that people have been together enough that they all realize somebody knows something they don't know Mm -hmm. and they know something that somebody else doesn't know and that they're all in it together and they're willing to feel a little bit vulnerable and um, uh, humble there. It requires a very humble curiosity and then they can come together and they start, uh, holding each other's hands going through it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yes, and as a member who took part in one of those sessions, in one of the 10-week sessions, I think what was great, too, was uh, you all were able to turn it around and do it online, but breaking us up into those small groups online and giving each uh-huh. of us the opportunity to express ourselves in those small groups mm-hmm. really, really built community. And Lori, every time they switched it up, we were in groups with like different people. So you got a chance cool. to communicate with different people within the group. It was a really, really good course. And you're putting mm-hmm. in the time and that creates the bonds. And it does seem like the relationship is so huge in creating that trust and bond. Well, right. coming, coming down to one minute left for this segment, um, want to make sure that folks know about the Diversity Institute that Melissa's the executive director for. And um, we're going to be talking more about events and activities and things to be thinking about to get involved in our next segment um, that will open up, I hope, uh, more avenues for doing that type of bonding and moving beyond the fear. Getting beyond the defensiveness, um, finding, you know, the heart of how, how do we do this together. So thank you for this great conversation. And audience, thank you for joining us um, in this journey of discussion. And I'm looking forward to the year ahead working with Melissa and having conversations like this that help make a difference, help build a better future. Um, move us out of this 2020 and into 2021. So stay with us. We'll be right back uh, to share about what can that future look like. Welcome back to Connections Radio Show. 
I'm Lori Fitz, your host, and my co-host today is Melissa Adams, the Executive Director of the Diversity Institute. Melissa, you did a wonderful job bringing great people to our show, and Sue Hammersmith, Dr. Hammersmith, you are amazing. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. So let's talk about things that people can do. Um, Sue, tell us about some programs that people can get involved in. Well, here in um, Minnesota, there are a lot of opportunities. I'll mention those first. The um, uh, FREC Facilitating Racial Equity Collaborative is an informal group of people who are committed to uh, racial equity and diversity. It includes um, uh, people of different races. Some are community members. Some are professional consultants. Um, and uh, that group, if you want to get information about that group, they meet once a month and uh, they put on an annual Overcoming Racism conference that is um, has been going on for 16 years. We also put on an annual um, Racial Equity Leadership Institute that for educational leaders that particularly looks at uh, how we achieve racial equity in our educational system, K through 12 or higher education. And information about those programs can be found at, um, if you uh, Google overcomingracism.org. Overcomingracism.org. And then the ASDEC um, anti-racism study dialogue circles that Melissa has mentioned, um, those take place and um, we have many different kinds of training that goes on throughout the year, but the website for that would be A-S-D-I-C-I-C-R-L-E. Or you could Google ASDIC metamorphosis. We have the 10-week session. We also have um, have uh, many uh, short-term sessions on special topics. But, And I would also say the Smithsonian Institute has wonderful materials available. This uh, for 2021, for our Leadership Institute, we're going to be bringing in a curriculum that's based on the Smithsonian Institute's um, Museum for African American History and Culture site. And, and there, that's, if you go to that online, you can find a, more, more materials than you could possibly uh-huh. go through this year. <laughs> Right, and that site also has a tour of the museum, so you could actually do a virtual tour of and uh-huh. see what's in the museum. Mm-hmm. Well, well, the richness that you bring to us, Sue, being uh, past president of Metro State with your academic background um, and just your thoughtful listening skills that have helped translate what you've learned, um, it's been so powerful. I really appreciate um, the richness of your experience that you brought today in conversation. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. Melissa, talk to us about yeah. the Diversity Institute, thediversityinstitute.org. 
You've got some great things planned coming up this year. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 2021, we're turning our site, thediversityinstitute.org, into a e-learning platform where people can go sign up for classes, videos, download stuff. Um, it's a great opportunity for you to take your professional development into your own hands. When the executive order came out, some organizations might stop offering diversity, equity, and inclusion training altogether. If you are still interested in taking your own professional development training into your own hands, visit us at the diversityinstitute.org. Before we sign off, I'd just like to say thank you to my friends, colleagues, and um, co-host Lori, and to my mentor and uh, the person that I look up to the most, Dr. Sue Hammersmith. Thank you so much for being here with us today. And I also want to do a big thank you to Cecilia, your partner, uh, who has been such a... Such a good guiding force in the diversity and inclusion world mm-hmm. and all the good things that she brings to the Staten Adam Consulting. Um, also, you know, th- it's been tough holidays. Um, and how are we all coming together? I think it being somewhat in isolation gives us a time to reflect. And I hope that as we look to our next year where we're starting to connect uh, in real ways as well, you know, yeah. being able not to always be in the virtual Zoom world or, or on air. Um, I'm hoping that this is an opportunity for us to have thought about a lot of these issues and come together in new ways. And I am looking forward to being a part of the Diversity Institute and having the Diversity Institute be a part of our listening audience. So thank you for all that you're doing, Melissa. Well, thank you, Lori. I so uh, appreciate it. And thank you, Dr. Hammersmith, for being with us on your uh, weekend like this. We know that um, you probably were celebrating the holiday with family and friends, so we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us. Thank you. And, and we hear you're writing a book, so we're bringing you back when you get that book written. Yeah. Thank yes. you for <laughs> So be careful out there, be kind, be good, wear a mask, uh, and uh, happy holidays. Well, here we are again, and i got to tell you, Jim, this match has me really concerned. That's right, Ron. In one corner, we have a powerful heavyweight, a train. Weighing in at a whopping 6,000 tons. And in the other, this hasty lightweight challenger, a car at just one and a half tons. This does not bode well for the car or the people in it. Ron, this is one of those rare moments where I actually find myself at a loss for words. This driver can't think he can beat a train. I can hardly bear to watch. It's no contest. Every day, people are injured or killed trying to beat a train at rail crossings. Trying to beat a train is more dangerous than you think. See tracks, think train. For more safety tips and information, visit seatracksthinktrain.org.